Sit back, it's time to get groovy. Question, do you remember that movie? Welcome to the podcast. I am the third Alejandro Rosa on IMDb, and I am your host. For this podcast episode, we are bringing back a guest who does not like podcasts, who would not have any interest in coming back, except that I asked my wife, the wonderful, the amazing, Shay Rosa. Welcome, Shay. You haven't been here since we did a Black Widow episode, which was last year? Okay, in fairness. Was it last year? Was it the year before, or was it this year? I think it was last year, um, but you did mess up that one episode where we did Dirty Run Scoundrels. I don't like you <laughs> in my podcast telling people about the amount of times I mess up. They don't need to know, okay? They don't need to know. You know what they do need to know? They need to know about the film that we're going to talk about today. We are going to go back to the 1994 Little Women, starring Winona Ryder, Gabriel Byrne, Trini Alvarado, Samantha Mathis, Kirsten Dunst, Claire Danes, Christian Bale, Eric Stoltz, and Susan Sarandon, among others. That cast is stacked. For those of you who don't know, and it's fine if you don't, this film, which is the fifth feature film adaptation is based on the 1868-1869 two-volume novel by Louisa May Alcott. Before we talk about the film, what is your history with Little Women, the book? I actually have very uh, distinct memories of the book Little Women. Um, I was in second grade, so I was about seven or eight. They did this thing back in the 90s called Sustained Silent Reading where you would sit with a book for like a half hour and you would read the book quietly, I assume, to give the teacher a fucking break. Can't curse on the Christmas episode. (laughs) Yes, I can. What about the children? Yes, I can. The children are not listening to this. (laughs) Why would they listen to this? Because they're very interested in Winona Ryder's career. The children are definitely not listening to this. (laughs) I apologize. Continue. And I was absolutely thrilled by this concept the first time I heard of it in Mrs. Mullen's class. I did not like Mrs. Mullen's class, so this was uh, this was a high point. And I remember the first time that sustained silent reading happened, and I went to the bookshelf and I got this little tiny, like thin, nothing book. It was a Flintstones book that I'd been quite intrigued by because I'd seen it on the shelf, but I hadn't been able to get it. And I was like, "Cool, I'm going to read this." And I read it in like two seconds, and I got up to get a new book. And I was told to go sit back down and keep reading my book. And I was like, but I'm, but I'm done. And I need another one. Actually, I probably need several. And I was not allowed. And so I sat there very, very bored, flipping through this stupid Flintstones book for half an hour. And so I was prepared the next time. I brought a book from home. It was an abridged copy of Louisa May Alcott's Little Women. It wasn't like, like baby abridged. It was... Slightly briefer, not terribly briefer from what I remember. There were some really beautiful pictures that I think were taken from one of the original editions, but I brought it because I was like, well, fuck it. I'm not going to be bored. 
I'm going to be prepared. I'm going to have enough book to get me through this half hour and I'm going to enjoy myself. And it was the biggest book I had. So I figured I'd be safe. I read The Unabridged. It was a copy that I got from my grandmama's house that I still have. I think I started reading that one when I was about 10 and I've read it I would say at least yearly since then, usually around Christmas time. So when was the first time you saw this film and when was the most recent time you saw this film? So two-part question. All right, so the first time I saw this film, I want to say I was like 12-ish. I don't really remember the first time I watched it, honestly. I just remember kind of being in the mood to watch something and you know, rooting through my parents and DVDs and finding Little Women and going, oh, well, I like this book. So I watched Little Women. And I took it with me to college after I came to the realization that I was not actually going to be studying that much. And uh, yeah, I think the last time I watched it, I was in college. When we decided to pick this film, I did not recall that this film actually starts at Christmas time. Additionally, I did not know that its limited release was on Christmas of course it, was it was released December 25th, 1994 for a, a limited release and then fully released a few days later. I couldn't figure out what day it actually released to everyone. It was written by Robin Swicord, who is best known for her literary adaptations, including the 1996 version of Matilda, Practical Magic, Memoirs of a Geisha, and The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, which I believe nominated her for an Academy Award. Dang, girl. It was directed by Gillian Armstrong. Is it Gillian or Gillian? I think Gillian. Okay. Gillian Armstrong, who's an Australian director. Definitely Gillian. Who did a lot of films and also documentaries. Uh, and this was one of her big projects. Mm. And and I only add this, I don't always talk about the producers, but for this particular film, I feel it's important. This film was produced by Denise DeNovi. She would end up being a producer in the next second next film adaptation of this movie. Oh. So she actually produced this film and we will we were not going to really go into the 2019 adaptation, but she produced it. Which was pretty good. I believe it was also co-produced by Amy Pascal, who also was involved in the production of the 2019. And Robin Swicord not only co-produced this film, she also produced the other film. That explains the quality of that one. God, that makes so much sense. And the reason I say this is because these are three women who are at the head of producing this film, of creating this film. Who clearly understand me on a deep and visceral level. I think they do. And years and years later, when the thought of making another version of this came up, all of them were involved in the creation of it. And I think that's absolutely fascinating. 1994 to 2019. It's important to talk about the film adaptations because there are a bunch Seven, if I'm not mistaken. I've watched three. Well, the very first one you can't watch. I know that. I've looked. there's a 1917 silent film version, which is now considered lost. There's a 1918 silent film version. I've not watched that one. There's a 1933 film version starring Catherine Hepburn. I've watched that one. There's a 1949 film, which uh, doesn't star, but has Elizabeth Taylor playing Amy. I've heard of that one, but I haven't watched it. There's, of course, this 1994 one. Yes. There is a 2018 contemporary film adaptation. No. 
to mark the 150th anniversary of the novel that I had never heard of. No, it doesn't count. <laughs> it's like Bridget Jones's diary. Doesn't count. And then in 2019, the magical, fantastic Greta Gerwig wrote and directed her adaptation, starring Florence Pugh. There are plays. There is a musical. There is an opera. There are audio dramas. And in 2017, there was a BBC miniseries. See, I'd watch that. I didn't know about that. And I've got to watch that now. 2022, there is a Korean miniseries based of Little Women. Well, now I definitely need to watch that. So, and I, I say that only, you know, again, context for this was written in 1868, 1869, and we are still telling this story. It's timeless. Is it? Yes. Okay. So let's talk about the story. This is a story about the March family, a family that consists of four daughters. Four yes. daughters. Four Thank daughters. You. Sorry. No boys. Except no boys for, allowed. Except for Teddy. If I'm remembering correctly, Meg is meant to be sixteen, Joe fifteen, Beth thirteen, and Amy ten. You meet them hanging out in their living room, waiting for their mom to come home. Their mom is working to help soldiers. This book opens during the Civil War. We are in New England, so we're on the northern side. I believe we're in Concord, Massachusetts. Correct? Concord. Ah, damn it. Okay, Concord. Concord. We're in Concord, Massachusetts. In the 1800s, during the Civil War, their father is not fighting in the war. He's a chaplain, but he is in dangerous territory, far away from them. When Marmy comes home, Marmy is their mom. Uh, when Marmy comes home, she brings a letter from father, which is the most precious thing any of them can ever think of because they miss him so much. It's unbelievably sweet. And I found myself tearing up from the beginning of the film. <laughs> and that's where we are. We're in the middle of the Civil War. Um, Dad is away. And they're trying to do the best that they can. They have someone in the house with them. That's Hannah. She is their housekeeper and cook. You get this implied in the movie, but it's not really outlined. The family used to be quite well off. They fell on hard times because their father has very specific views, transcendentalist views, and they do not have the money that they used to have. And so right now you're, you're meeting the girls where the two oldest ones remember what it was like to have money and what it was like to be kind of ladies of leisure, like the other people that they know. And the two younger ones really don't remember what that was like, but Amy at least really wishes that she did and that they were still in that same condition. And so when you meet these girls in the movie, um, Meg is a governess and she is home from work. When you see her for the first time, Joe is a companion to their elderly aunt, who she does not like at all. Beth stays at home because she's still a child, and she doesn't like to go to school. She's not suited for going to school, so she learns at home. And Amy goes to school every day, and she hates it because she has to wear hand-me-downs. The neighbor, Mr. Lawrence, mm -hmm. turns to his grandson at one point at the beginning of the film and says something along the lines of, that used to be a very affluent family. One of our finest families. Yes. But they don't tell us, so how come they're not anymore? So 
fun fact, um, anybody who knows Little Women, who knows Louisa May Alcott, the works of Louisa May Alcott, knows that Little Women specifically is not autobiographical. It is her idealized version of her autobiography. It is what her ideal vision of what her family was. It was loosely based on her family. Uh, It was loosely based on uh, specifically Mr. March and his transcendentalist views were very, very clearly based on her father, what her father could have been, who her father could have been, her father being a very sage, wise, level-headed, steadying influence, particularly on Marmee who makes it a point to explain to Joe that, yes, she also has quite the terrible temper and she's had to learn how to restrain herself. Interesting because her Louisa May Alcott's father in real life was not particularly responsible um, and was, I wouldn't say shiftless because that's that's really insulting, Um, but just not very realistic about things like money, and needing food. Just for clarification for those of you who don't know, Transcendentalism was a philosophical and societal movement which developed in New England around 1836. Divinity pervades all nature and humanity. Followers held very progressive views about feminism and communal living. Emerson and Thoreau were both the most famous transcendentalists. As you know, I love Emerson. Yeah. Um, and, and fun fact, so in throughout the movie, you get the most the, that you get of the transcendentalist philosophy is from Marmee. Yes. And they give her way more of that in the movie than they ever do in the book. Um, she's much more outspoken in public than she ever was in the books. Now, and in the book, she, you know, she was gentle and measured and she discussed these things with her daughters in a very realistic but very gentle manner. And in the movie, you get a more bold version. Like, for instance, the scene where she is walking with Meg and with John Brooke, and she starts this whole rant about corsets being deeply unhealthy. And that's a very feminist view at the time and correct. But she would never have been that blunt in the book Certainly not in the actual time period. Nobody was going to talk about ladies' undergarments to dudes. That's not a thing. Yeah, and and to be fair, Meg, who is the oldest daughter, she was deeply shocked. She was deeply shocked and was like, kind of, it was a whole mom. mom don't talk like that. Oh my god, why are you gonna talk like that? He's so cute. Why? So, I have to say before we go on, and I know we can't cover the entire plot. You have to, yeah. I can't, we can't do it all because you got to watch the movie or read the book or be, both do both. This will be a two hour podcast episode. It's so good though. The very beginning of the film. And I, I have to point it out because I thought it was so powerful. It's Christmas time and they put out food and they put out sausage and they just lose their minds. Like, Oh my God, we have sausage. Oh my God, we have butter. We have an orange. We have oranges. Oranges, by the way, at the time, extraordinarily expensive and rare and very much a Christmas treat because they were so very, very expensive. Like this was a sign that, hey, we've made it. We can afford oranges. And so 
they're having this kind of celebratory moment. They're all excited. And somebody even says, and I don't know, I can't remember if it's Meg or if it's Amy, who says, isn't this just like the old days? It was Meg. It was Meg. I Meg thought, remembers. she remembers. She remembers what it's like to be wealthy. Yes. And they start talking about, where is mom? Marmy is frequently called out uh, because she is known for her charitable ways. And this family specifically plays a big part in multiple plots uh, in the book and also in this movie. They're the Hummels. They are a German immigrant family living in abject poverty. No father, lots of children, tiny, tiny children living in a, a shack with absolutely nothing, barely rags. They don't have any firewood. They've got no food. They've got nothing. And this is Massachusetts. Yes, in the winter time. Yeah. Holy crap, guys. Meg and Beth, I'm pretty sure it's Beth, who decide that the Hummels have nothing. They have so much. The food is in front of them. They're about to eat. And then they realize that the Hummels have nothing. And it starts out with, we should take them firewood. And, oh, they don't really have any food. You know what would be great? We sausages. Should bring, we should bring them some bread. And then, well, first it's the sausages. And then the bread. And, and then, then one of them says, well, you can't really do anything with butter you don't have any bread. Poor little Amy and her orange. And the tiny 10-year-old <laughs> is like clutching the orange for dear life. Because she really wants that damn orange. And you can't blame her because that's like candy. Comes the moment that made me tear up immediately. So they put on their cloaks, they grab all their food and firewood, and they just have a little trek down to whatever hovel the Germans are living in. And they start singing as they're doing it. And this is, this is like, uh, it's pulled directly from the book. Yeah. Them singing carols as they walk to the Hummels. And they have no idea Mr. Lawrence and his grandson are watching them do this beautiful act. Again, Mr. Lawrence lives next door. He takes on a grandson who has apparently been raised wildly in Italy. Okay, he was raised in Europe by his parents who both died. His mother was Italian and he was raised and, yeah, whatever. Um, he learned to play the piano. It wasn't that exciting. He went to a music conservatory. What is his name? Is it His Theodore. name is Theodore Lawrence. Which, Everybody calls him Laurie. Except? Except for Joe, who calls him Teddy. Joe, of course, played by Winona Ryder. For, again, those of you who aren't familiar with this story is essentially one of our main characters. She's the second March sister. She's a writer. She is the main character because she's she is our narrator. She is our narrator. She's a writer. She's she, our Louisa May Alcott. Absolutely. She, she she is she is the Louisa May Alcott model. Meg is our older child who wants to conform, who wants a very specific type of life, the life modeled, that is expected. Modeled on Louisa May Alcott's older sister. Whereas Joe does not want to conform to this societal whatever expectation. That's not what she wants with her life. She has no interest in it. She has no interest in weddings or anything else. She wants to write. She wants to She wants to act if she, she can't write. She wants to be a boy. Like That's very distinct. And I don't read anything further into that. And others may, and that's completely okay and understandable. And it makes sense. My personal interpretation of Joe and her desire, 
her desire to be a boy, which she states multiple times, is based on the constraints of her society, on her as a person. And she states so many times that she wishes she was a boy. She wishes she could do these things. She wants to go to college. She's so desperately jealous of Teddy because he can go to college and she wants to so badly but she can't because she's not a boy because she lives in this deeply constricting time period and in this family that's very very understanding of her desires and her wishes and her wanting to move outside of the constriction of being a woman in the 19th century which by the way was a sucky position to be in she wasn't satisfied with that. She wanted more. And the best way she could express that was by saying, I wish I was a boy. Joe March's full name is Josephine. <laughs> she goes by Joe. Shay, what is your daughter's name? Her name is Josephine. And what do we call her? Joe, because Jojo sucks. <laughs> we call her And Josie jo. also sucks. And my family just needs to understand that. We call her Joe. Because she was named after Joe March. Yes, she was. And so far, folks, she is not even seven yet, but does she live up to her name? Yeah, I'm having some army trials. We are introduced at some point to Mr. Lawrence's grandson, mm -hmm. Laurie, or Teddy, depending yes. on who you are, who befriends the March family. He is alone, and I think this is very important, and, and they do emphasize this in the film. It's played by a very young Christian Bale. Who was a surprisingly great casting choice, by the way. Like, Absolutely. He's grown on me over the years. At first, I didn't like him. He wasn't my, my mind's eye version of Laurie. He's definitely better than Chalamet. Chalabur. I'm sorry. He just looks like a baby, and I can't. I loved the character of Laurie watching it this time around. When I watched this film, it was probably in the mid to late 90s. Probably fell asleep watching it. That's rude. So I'm going to cut that out. I'm edit that <laughs> whole thing. Let me continue. I was probably still in Puerto Rico when this film came out. I probably went to the movie theater and watched it. Because this is a shock for anyone who's listening to me do a movie podcast. I was an avid movie watcher as a child. What? I know. I didn't like Laurie. When I first watched this film, I thought it was annoying. I didn't either. I, again, not my mind's eye version. There is something about that character that compelled me because I recognized his loneliness. He has no one except his prim and proper grandfather to see him alone in the middle of Massachusetts. And then he finds this family who is to him delightful. You can tell he just loves them. So we have these, this family. We have Meg, who is the older sister, clearly responsible, wants to do what she's supposed to do. Yes, Mary Well. Grandfather of Laurie brings in John Brooke, uh, played by the delightful, the, my, favorite, my favorite redhead from the 1980s and 90s, Mr. Eric Stoltz. Man, can I just tell you that watching the movie for the first time and subsequent times and still now... I see John Brooke as portrayed by Eric Stoltz, and I think, wow, Eric Stoltz, you're doing a really great job of, of portraying this character. You look 0% like him. This is a problem to me, and I don't understand it. You know what? To the audience of 1994, he was perfect. They didn't read the book. Leave it alone. We haven't talked about Beth. Can I just say for the record? Go ahead. For the record. 
I love Claire Danes. I think that Claire Danes is an exceptional actress. One of the best actresses of her personal I generation. I think she's stunning. She was a terrible Beth. Why? She is so strong. She evokes such strength. She did not know how to channel that strength into Beth, who is a very strong person and a very strong character. Though she's very weak, she's very shy, she's an anxious little creature, poor thing, who is devoted to her dolls and the poor broken dolls of her sisters that were handed down to her, who she has a little doll hospital for. It's very cute. She's so shy that when given the opportunity to play the beautiful piano at the Lawrence's house, again, this is from the book. I'm sorry, I can't detach the two. I really can't. It's like Harry Potter. I can't detach <laughs> the book from the movie because okay. there's so much right. subtext. Let me help. Let me help. Beth is our sweet child who is kind of shy. She's extraordinarily shy. She can't be around boys or adults who are loud or people who are just not her people. She loves being home. She loves being with her family. She loves playing her piano, which is not very nice, but it's hers. It's a terrible little piano. Yeah. Beth is absolutely adorable. She's so sweet. Claire Danes is not correct for her. Agree to disagree. I thought she did an exceptional job. You haven't read the book. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) um, this is not a book podcast. This is a movie podcast. Okay, if you're talking about a film adaptation of a book, you have to talk about both of them. Fine. Is what it is, man. So let's just kind of do a little summary here. Meg is the responsible older one who wants to do what she's supposed to do. She's fine with not marrying rich. She just has to marry correctly. Joe has zero interest in being married. Beth wants to stay home with her family. Amy, the youngest of the children, she wants to marry Rich. Oh, fuck yeah, she I does. I love her so much because at some point she's like, like, who cares? As long as there's money, I'm good. I want to live the good life. And I know that my path to living the good life is to marry well. And it's kind of hilarious. And at first you're like, well, that's ridiculous. But when you take it into the context of the society, you're like, yeah, I kind of get it. Also, you got to be the one who got raised in poverty, unlike your two older sisters. On that note, Amy, she is very vocal about the fact that, well, one of them has got to marry rich because who else is going to take care of them? It's not just about her living the good life. It's who the fuck else is going to take care of my sisters if one of us doesn't marry rich? What, are we just going to leave them destitute? That's That can't happen. One of us has to do it. I guess it's me. That kind of reminds me a little bit of Pride and Prejudice. Yes. No, not Pride and Prejudice. I, I, I'm sorry, Sense and Sensibility. Yes. Where you have a family who's not doing well, and the most important thing is if one of them marries well, then everyone's taken care of, because that's the way society was. Okay, well, that's true of any Regency slash Jane Austen novel. Pride and Prejudice, Sense and Sensibility, any of them, honestly. All of them. Something that is very distinct, if you're looking for it, and if you know the relationships, you will see at one point Beth wearing one of Joe's hand-me-down dresses. And later on, you will see grown-up Amy wearing one of Meg's hand-me-down dresses. This is important because in the book, it's very, very clear that as the two oldest, Meg and Joe have taken it upon themselves to take in hand their younger sisters. And it doesn't really say it in the movie. The costumes do. There is a reason why this film's design is so good. 
It's so excellent. When they created the visual for this film, they based it off of photographs, paintings, and drawings of the era. That was a really big thing for our director, Gillian Armstrong. She wanted it to look real. Now, I think it actually has a lot to do with the fact that Gillian Armstrong is into documentaries. And please tell me that that was real snow because every time we saw a snowy scene, I was like, holy crap, either that's the best visual effect I've ever seen in my entire life or that's real ass snow. It was 1994 and they predominantly filmed in Canada. So I bet it was real snow. Yes. <laughs> they, they filmed a little bit in Massachusetts, but it was almost entirely in Canada. This film takes place through multiple years. We see the girls growing up. We see... Joe and Lori's relationship grow. Meg ends up with John Brooke, falls for her instantly. They fall for each other. It's very sweet. I wish that this particular movie had been a doc- had been a miniseries because the Meg and John relationship was such a beautiful build in the book. One of the disappointments is the glossing over of John and Meg and Meg's bravery in choosing John as a partner because you you spoke earlier about Meg not necessarily wanting to marry Rich but wanting to marry properly. That's not correct. In the book, Meg is the eldest and she had all of these very fancy friends and part of her going to Sally Moffat's do and her coming out was getting to know eligible men And it wasn't Marmy's plan, but it was Meg's plan. Her plan was to marry Rich, to provide for her family. So you see where Amy's mentality comes from. And of course, Meg remembers being wealthy, and she misses it. There are so many plot points that we have to cover to get through this (laughs) seven-hour podcast. You asked me. One of them. (laughs) Yes, I did. One of them is the fact that John Brooke, a.k.a. Eric Stoltz, who is delightful, At some point, they get a letter, actually it's a telegram, saying that Mr. March has been wounded and is in a hospital in Washington. And this is, at this point, Meg and Mr. Brooke are kind of doing their thing. They're going through the courtship. They're feeling each other out, but not in a sexy way. Why do you do this? You're welcome. This is... (laughs) How am I ever going to get a Disney Plus deal if you keep talking like this? So We can be on adult Disney Plus. Stop it. Anyway. They're doing Andor. So That's Marmy adult. has to run off to D.C. to see what's going on with her husband. Mr. Brooke says, I have business in Washington. I will escort you. And by that, he means Mr. Lawrence gave him money and said, please go to Washington with Marmy. We don't know that because we didn't read the book. That is 100% what happened. (laughs) Anyway. Because Mr. Lawrence couldn't actually give Marmy money because she wouldn't take it. Correct. So that happens. Context here that I'm really upset about the movie missing is the fact that they really gloss over John Brooke and Meg's courtship, which is very, very important to Joe. We only have two hours. It's important to Joe because Joe hates it so much. So she notices every little thing and she's deeply pissed off throughout the entire courtship. And what the film does hint on that. What turns her around, though, and she does turn around, is Meg and Mr. Brooke have been corresponding 
Well, he was in Washington with father. Marmy comes back early because Beth is sick. No, oh my God, you're so focused on Megan Brooke, you don't even talk about poor Beth <laughs> we'll getting get to scarlet Beth. fever? We'll no, you just jumped. Everybody knows about Beth. No, nobody knows about Beth. This is a movie podcast. Oh. We just watch things. We don't read. You're the worst. Anyway, <laughs> I shall continue. Mr. Brooks stays behind with Mr. March. and In Washington. In Washington. and D.C., right? Washington State doesn't exist. I knew that. <laughs> yes. Washington, D.C., because Washington State doesn't exist and had absolutely nothing to do with the Civil War. Let me ask you this question, not to get off topic. Do we get any more of Meg in the 2019 version? Not really. Okay. It's really upsetting. And I, Meg is not my favorite character, but it's still really upsetting. All right. So I think what we have here is a book lover who sees the nuance and the chapters that were written not being put on the screen. Meg is arguably my least favorite of the girls. And still, I'm really disappointed at this And I think cutting this is, of her backbone. <laughs> so let's, let's, let's go ahead and put all cards on the table. This is why... You prefer miniseries to films. Movies suck. She says on a movie podcast. <laughs> because a film has 120 minutes, typically, unless it's a Marvel film. And then it can go on for seven years. It usually has 120 minutes to get the points across. And that's it. And so things have to be cut. Things have to be shifted. Focus has to be on the main character. And I don't like it. You like miniseries because they go on for longer, so they have time to delve into these other stories. Miniseries or series themselves, because they give the time for the subplot. Speaking it's of... It's two books. This podcast can't be two hours, so I'm going to do a brief bullet point. So here's what happens, folks. Fine. Lori falls in love with Joe, or at least believes he's fallen in love with Joe. They have this incredible friendship, which I think is a beautiful friendship. It's and a beautiful friendship. Yes. He goes to absolutely. Harvard. One of the most beautiful moments in this film when and one of the most so heartbreaking moments. Jealous of him going to college. It's not that she is upset that he is going to Harvard. So she, she is can't upset. go too. And so he goes. We have time passes. Lori comes back, aka Teddy, from Harvard. He's graduated. He comes and sees Joe. And he essentially says, Let's do this. Let's do this thing. Let's get married. And she has the most heartbreaking line, I think, in this entire film. And there are multiple. Poor Joe. Please don't ask me. Because she cares about his friendship so much that she doesn't want to hurt him. This is the only scene I don't like Christian Bale in. See, I do. I do. I disagree because with you. Teddy expresses his love. He says, let's go to London. I've agreed to like study the business. And... She says, Teddy, please don't ask me. And he has this breathtaking line where he's telling her, you're going to meet somebody one day and you will love them. And I'll be hanged if I'll stand by and watch. That's verbatim from the book. I just don't like his delivery. And he leaves. And that is both, it's heartbreaking for both of them. It's heartbreaking because this is Joe's best friend outside her family. And this is who he believes he loves. And honestly, the subtext there from the book, this should be a chorus. 
The subtext there is that Joe has considered this and she's known it was coming. She's known and she's dreaded it because she's seen the signs. She's not stupid. She knows how Teddy looks at her. She knows and she doesn't want him to, but she doesn't know how to stop it. And she just keeps hoping it goes away because Joe is lovely, but she's avoidant. And so she spent a lot of time really hoping that he's just going to get past it, which is why she looks at him and says, please don't ask me. I have never thought about the worst thing somebody could say to you when you're about to propose. (laughs) I know. Other than the words no, right? The actual worst is for the love of God, do not ask me to marry you. Also, fun story. Um, in the book, she spent some time hoping and praying when Beth's health looked good, right? Because of the amount of time that Teddy spent with Beth, she desperately, desperately wished that Teddy had fallen in love with Beth. Unfortunately, like the film, we have to summarize Here's what happens. Meg, John Brooke, they get married. They have babies. The end. Joe. Twins. Daisy and Demi. Joe, Teddy slash Lori break up, even though they were never together. Beth goes to visit the Hummels, our lovely German family. She's handed a baby who is very, very sick. We later find out that baby and another baby die of scarlet fever. And then suddenly, Beth doesn't feel too good. And if anybody's having COVID flashbacks, I apologize, because that's all of us. Beth gets sick. They desperately try to get her better. It works. She's alive for a long time. And in the process, at some point, Joe decides she needs to get out of here. And Marmee supports her and says, you do. You need to go. And she goes to New York to try to become a writer. She's a tutor. Amy has befriended Aunt March, played by the delightful the hilarious Mary Wicks. At first, Joe is working for her. When Beth gets scarlet fever, Amy's the youngest, so they have to get her away to make sure she doesn't get it. It's not that. that. So context, the belief at that time was that if you've had scarlet fever once, you will never get it again. You are immune. Joe and Meg both had mild versions of scarlet fever in their childhood. Beth has scarlet fever. Amy has never had it, which is why they had to make her leave. So in the process, Amy is sent to go see the, the quote, evil Aunt March. She's a super nice lady. She's a super nice lady. And she ends up taking care of Amy. And she becomes what Joe was for Aunt March. But more so, because, again, Amy was interested in society. She's interested in learning the ways. And she's less interested in interesting things at this point in her life. We can just go ahead and point that out. She's not an intellectual, our Amy. We like her, but she is not an intellectual, and she was not bored in the way that Joe was bored. Joe goes to New York, and that's when we get to meet Friedrich. I love Friedrich. A German professor. Elizabeth disagrees with me about Friedrich. I love him. Friedrich and Joe meet at a boarding house. She is become she's become a tutor. It's not a scandalous boarding house. No, it's like the nice kind. It's a friend of her mother's who owns this boarding house, and so she goes to be essentially a governess to her mother's friend's children. In the process, while she's doing this, Joe is trying to write. She's trying to send things to publications. She is being denied just by walking in as a woman. 
And in the process, she meets another boarder who is also a tutor, who in Germany was a professor, but in America, he's a tutor. Contextualizing this, and this is in the movie, Joe always expected to go abroad with Aunt March. That's true. She always expected that her years of companionship with Aunt March would pay off and she would get to go to Europe with Aunt March. This would be her reward for dealing with the absolute boredom of, you know, Aunt March and her poodle. Joe was stuck reading Pilgrim's Progress to Aunt March for 70 years, so she always assumed that she would be going abroad with Aunt March as kind of a reward. And so Amy kind of sliding in as Aunt March's more desirable companion and definitely more eligible in terms of presentation to society because Amy has always been very conscious of that and wanting to present herself in a very certain way, which is not at all a criticism. Good job, Amy. You understand your circumstances. And you're trying to work within the constraints of your society. And so Joe going to New York was a direct response to hearing that Amy got her journey. And it's very upsetting for her. And she she needs to get out. She needs to go somewhere. And so Marmy like forges up this connection that she's had out of nowhere and is like, hey, my friend, Mrs. Kirk, needs a governess for her girls in her boarding house. Are you okay with that in New York? And Joe was like, well, it's better than nothing. And by this time, she had been publishing in magazines and papers and earning a little bit of money, like, up through. So, like, her going to New York was not, like, the be-all and end-all of her publishing. I, I, I don't understand why it's presented that way. But she'd been earning money this way and buying little things and and more expensive things for her family that her father could not provide once for again, years at this point. Once again, the film does not tell this story that way. I know. As Jesus, she, take the wheel. <laughs> she rolls her eyes. People are going to be so confused if they watch this movie. They're like, where is this cool I'm stuff I'm giving you some text. You're giving us way too Read much. Read the book. The movie is Read good. Read the book. It is good. It's not good enough. Here's what you need to know. Friedrich and oh, Joe, he understands her. He gets who she is. He supports her. And he criticizes her a little. So this is interesting. Oh my god! If you're going to reference the book again, no, I'm, I'm going not. To cry. I'm. I'm not because I can't get through this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I will. I will lend. Are you going to talk about the movie now? No. I... <laughs> <laughs> I apologize. My guest is upset that she is muted right now because she keeps making references to the book. So I have muted her microphone, and she is banging her forehead against the microphone in protest. Your protest is acknowledged, Joe and Friedrich. Fall in love. She finally does, as Laurie predicted, find someone for her. And it's beautiful. And he respects her and he loves her work. But he loves her so much that he even criticizes her work a bit, stating, you could do more than this. Is this all? This is not all you've got. You have more. (laughs) Okay, I cannot... (laughs) 
Now she's just banging on the table, so I unmute her. Fine, you're unmuted. What I was going to say, I have strong feelings about this. What I was Does going- it have to do with the movie? Yes! <laughs> what some listeners, and I'm going to go ahead and uh, call out one Elizabeth Brandon, who I know is going to listen to this. Former guest on this show. She did the Billie Jean episode. Please listen. Yes, indeedy. And she disagrees with me about this wholeheartedly. My view on Friedrich is that he does have justifiable criticism of Joe's work and that it's not unnatural that she would fall in love with him because, as we are led to believe, she is a heterosexual young woman with, you know, like a libido. Like, I mean, Friedrich is real sexy. So let's just go ahead with that one. Played by the brilliant... Gabriel Byrne. Yeah, I don't find him that sexy. He was miscast. But anyway. (laughs) Go on. (laughs) Anyway, he tried. She was really young. And he is very handsome with dreamy eyes. But he was not what one would call young. Now, question. Um, Question. In the book, was he... Oh, you're bringing out the book now. What? (laughs) This is terrible. In... The book is he considered much older? Yes, he is. The thing is that Gabriel Byrne does not look like an an older, rumpled, bearded German large man. I want a beardy German gentleman, not Gabriel Byrne, who looks like a very, very sensitive British man. He was delightful. No. Agree to disagree. Teenage me and 35-year-old me would beg to disagree. And I am the audience. Do you know who was the favorite to play this role? I hope not Gabriel Byrne. It wasn't. Going into casting, the person who charmed everyone at his audition was a much younger Hugh Grant. Ew! (laughs) And here's the thing. Stop it! Here's the thing. No, stop it! They loved him. But he was too perfect. He was too confident to everything. Yeah, he's supposed to be unconfident. And that's exactly why Hugh Grant didn't get the role. I cannot even imagine him trying a German accent. My point here is that Friedrich's view of Joe's writing... And this is a callback to before, to the very beginning. And I made a note about this. So at one point, Joe says, not in the book, but in the movie, she says, the trick to being a good writer is you don't write what you know. And Friedrich's point, his larger point, is that, sure, you can write what you don't know, but you can tell that you don't know it. Write what you know. And that's the very root of it. And that's the root of Louisa May Alcott's writing this book. Because Louisa May Alcott did what Joe did, right? She wrote newspaper serials and magazine serials. And she made money that way. And she made money to support her family that way. And she was never ashamed of that. And I will agree with Elizabeth on this one. That it's not right that she should be ashamed of the money that she made from her newspaper serials. And from her magazine writings. Because in the book, she supported her family with that. 
She supported their lifestyle. Her father made no money after he came back from the war. He made absolutely no money. Nobody made any money except her. She took Beth to the seaside for her health. She And that's where they had that very, very sentimental conversation on the deathbed in the movie, by the way. That's where they had that conversation. By the seaside, Spoiler just alert. the two of them. Spoiler alert. And, and this is another disappointment for me that they didn't have that Joe used her money that she earned with her pen that she worked so hard for to take Beth to the sea for health and for and also and also just to take her away. I know that we have jumped around this plot. Beth survives scarlet fever, but her health is impacted. Her heart is impacted. Her health is impacted. Her health just She's generally. never the same. Actually, and probably her lungs. And it's so beautiful to me in the film how her family loves her and supports her regardless. And there's this great moment. And, and I'm going to go way back. Oh, to Christmas. To Christmas. Because Christmas happens twice in this film. The second time, it's after Beth has had scarlet fever. And she comes downstairs. And I think this is important because at the beginning of this film, we see Aunt March as separate. And we see Mr. Lawrence as separate. But as time passes, they become more part of the family. Now, clearly the book goes into greater detail about how this occurs. In the film, we are just shown it. And Beth comes downstairs. And one of the things that they say at the beginning of the film is Beth loves the piano at Mr. Lawrence's house. It's much nicer than hers. And so they come downstairs for Christmas. They bring Beth downstairs, who is being held by her sisters because she has some massive health problems. And there is Aunt March, and there is Mr. Lawrence, and they present to her a piano. It is Mr. Lawrence's piano. And he says to her, this was my daughter's. She died when she was very young, and I should have given this to you a long time ago. And it ripped me apart as a parent to see someone's loss. And it's it's a quite beautiful moment in the film. But you have something to share. I do. So in the book, fairly early in the book, after they make friends with Lori, it's described as a slow progression, right? They slowly get to know him. Beth is the holdout because she is very shy around boys, around anyone who is rambunctious and... Mr. Lawrence scares her. Just to be clear, this is the book, not the movie. Oh, my God. And Mr. Lawrence is very scary to her because he's kind of a gruff old gentleman. And she's not used to that. So, Lori and Mr. Lawrence and Joe conspire to make sure that Beth can have unfettered, uninterrupted access to their conservatory in the house where the piano is, a beautiful grand piano, the likes of which she has never played on in her life. And she would spend hours there. And unbeknownst to her, she considered it kind fairies, would leave simple but beautiful pieces of music for her to learn and practice while she was in there. And she would slip, across, slip through the hedge between the houses. And she would go and she would play. And Mr. Lawrence 
but sit outside the room and listen blissfully to her beautiful music, thinking of his little girl. And so there was one occasion Beth was in, was at the market, and Mr. Lawrence was there too. And there was a poor woman who could not afford to buy what she wanted to buy, and Mr. Lawrence just bought it for her and handed it to her and said, go feed your children, go. And Beth thought, well, he can't be all bad, even if he is very, very gruff. And so she sewed him a pair of slippers, just just bed slippers, little embroidered things, not very fancy, not anything much. And she thought it was very humble, but, you know, she thought he was a very nice person, but she didn't want to give them to him directly because, you know, he's, he, you know, he's scary. He's a scary man. She gave them to him. And he was so sweet, so gentle, and so kind, and so grateful. And he gave her a hug, and he kind of snuggled her a little bit, because he missed his little girl. And she thought he was such a nice, and he told her all about his little girl. And then she played for him, and she played for him every day in his house, for as long as he wanted. Beth became Mr. Lawrence's little girl, and that's why the piano was such a big deal. He bought her, he did give her, his little girl's piano. But that's the context. And that's why it's kind of sad that you don't get that background. Because they did have quite a beautiful relationship. That's one of my disappointments in the film. It is hard to tell the story of four different people in two hours. Which is why it should be a miniseries. <laughs> Absolutely. Or a series. Just a series. I'm fine with that. I'm going to ask you a few questions. Yeah. We're going to leave the plot. We're going to leave it because... Did I make you cry enough with Beth? You definitely made my eyes tear up. And Was that devastating? for almost two hours. Was that devastating? Because it's devastating. It is devastating. It's the sweetest passage you've ever read in your entire life. Do you know how long it took for this movie to find a studio to make it? I can only imagine. It's so beautiful. It took 12 years. I believe that. It's so beautiful and elaborate. I, I can only imagine. It had, but, but here's why. It, it could have been, it must have been extremely expensive. No, that had nothing to do with it. Let me tell you why. Because for 12 years, this film, which is the fifth film, who was in this film previously? Catherine Hepburn, right? Elizabeth Taylor. Nobody wanted this film. You know why? Women. That's exactly right. This sort of film was assumed to have no appeal to male audiences and deemed not worth the risk of production. In fact, Columbia Pictures, who made this film, only agreed if Winona Ryder played Joe March. Which I always felt was an interesting choice and not maybe the best choice. Here's why. In the early 90s... Winona Ryder was huge. She had already done Beetlejuice. She had already done Heathers. She had already done Edward Scissorhands. She had already done Bram Stoker's Dracula. She had already done The Age of Innocence, which she received an Oscar nomination for, for Best Supporting Actress. Reason. So this movie took 12 years to make, and the only reason they signed up was because they had a strong star to cover it, right? This movie was made for 15 to $18 million. It went on to make $95 million at the Fuck. box office. Like Black Widow... Proving that, no, you are wrong, Hollywood. Women leading movies is the best investment 
you could possibly make. And yet, we continue to fight for it. 1994, Black Widow happened in 2021. Yeah, we got a lot of work to do. Still, thanks, guys. Here's a fun casting question because I love doing casting. Alternative casting questions. Who do you think was up for Amy in this original film of 1994? Other than a very young Kirsten Dunst. I have absolutely no idea, but she was perfect. Thora Birch and a very unknown Natalie Portman. Do you know who else? Who was actually considered the best read overall? Reese Witherspoon. Reese Witherspoon. I mean, she's a very nice lady, but not for this. Hear me out. So one of the, the, the controversial things with the character of Amy is that we see her very young and we see her older. Oh, man, I have such a problem with it. And the difficulty was being able having to match one actress to play both younger and older. This is actually something I was thinking about when I was watching it, which is that the Winona, the actress who played Meg. Trini Alvarado. Yes. Claire Danes. If okay. you were going to be cast with Kirsten Dunst, you were all too old. Kirsten Dunst was very young. She was, but consider the fact, again, the ages of the characters. Understood. Kirsten was actually the only appropriately appropriately aged actress cast. And I don't want to I don't want to make it seem like she didn't do a great job. She did fantastically. When they were talking about whether one actress played the role of Amy or two, Kirsten blew everybody away. Because she's so good. Little Amy. Because right? she was so good and she, she remains excellent. She's exceptional. When they were talking about an actress who could play both young and old, Reese blew everybody away. It was just the question of, do we have one actress playing both roles? Now, if you recall, Reese is actually very small as a person. She's very short in stature. What? <laughs> How could I, as a small person, not <laughs> notice that? She was very young in 1994, so she could have pulled it off. But when they were looking at, can we make this work? With one actress. Not with the other actresses that they had cast. That can't work. It's so jarring to see older Amy. And you really don't have the time to get to know her, first of all. So you have no emotional connection to her. No, that's true. And that's not a castigation on the actress. No, she. I thought she did a great she job. She did a very good job it was with, not with her what fault. she was given. It Halfway was not through her fault. the movie, we're introduced to a new actress. That's not her fault. Yeah. And my problem, again, is that... If you're going to cast Kirsten Dunst at that age, you have to change them all. If you have not read this book, if you have not seen any of these movie adaptations, Shay, why would you say, hey, you should watch this movie? Because if you're a girl or if you're part of a large family or if you've wanted to be part of a large family, you're going to relate to this. Thank you so much for coming onto this podcast again. Everyone who's been on the show or who's listened to the show, thank you. Thank you for supporting me and this ridiculous little podcast. We will have more episodes in the coming year. We even have a New Year's Eve episode, which is coming from Japan. So stay tuned.